delighted this morning to introduce to you my friend and former professor, Dr. Richard Pratt. Does this mean I get to grade you? That's good, that's good. It's been a while. He is the president of Third Millennium Ministries, which is a wonderful ministry that's taking biblical education into the entire world, and they do that for free through a multimedia platform. Dr. Pratt was telling us this morning that most pastors around the world, and we take for granted of what we have here in the United States, but most pastors around the world have less than one hour of formal biblical theological training. And so Third Millennium Ministry seeks to get education to pastors in their language around the world, and he's been devoted to this full-time now for almost 10 years. The ministry's been a while around for quite some time. Uh, he's the author of, of several books, uh, pray with your eyes open. Uh, we've got some of these for free out there in the narthex. I encourage you to pick some up. Uh, there's a million books on prayer. This is one of the best ones I've, I've used and read. Uh, he, he gave us stories is also out there as well. Much of what I know and have learned from the Old Testament and how I understand this theme of God's kingdom and his grace from beginning to end, Dr. Pratt has taught me that and helped me. So this morning, glad to have him come and to preach from God's word to us from Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Dr. Pratt, thank you. Thank you, Wilson. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. I hope you're doing well. It's good weather today, yeah. I'm really glad to be with you. Man, this is a big pulpit. You may not be able to see it, but it's like all over the place up here. What do you bring up here? Your books. I really am glad to be with you. Thank you. It was uh, for those who were with me, the men on Friday night over at Westminster Church. We're, I'm glad to see you and a number of you I've known from the distant past and other churches around here and you've migrated here. So way to go. Good to see you. And those that I don't know, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> that a church would have people that I would not have known. And that's a great thing because it means that you're reaching out, it means that you're growing, and that's a delight to my heart, and I hope it is to yours too. The scripture reading this morning is a part of the Bible that most of you are familiar with, and so rather than me read it to you, what I'm going to ask you to do is recite it with me. And we usually call it the Lord's Prayer. Do a handful of you know that? Okay, good. So we're going to recite that in a minute, not as a prayer, but as a scripture reading. But before we do, I have to find out something from you. Do you have trespasses or debtors here? <laughs> debtors? Okay, all right. So if you're a trespasser this morning, you're off the hook. If you're a debtor, which is supposed to be, you're in trouble. Okay? But all of you will remember that in Matthew, Jesus taught his disciples to pray this way. Recite it with me, please. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we have just recited words that you taught your disciples to pray thousands of years ago. A lot of us have memorized those words from childhood. 
lot of us repeat them week after week, some even day after day. And so they're so familiar to us that we come to you now, the living Christ, and ask you to teach us. We call no one our teacher but you. We trust no one like we trust you. We hope in no one like we hope in you. We long to see no one like we long to see you. And so we pray you'll send Holy Spirit to us, that you will come and fill our hearts, that we may see the truth, that we may hear it, that we may be empowered to live according to it. And as you do that, we will praise you and we will give you the glory for it. Amen. I think everybody in here will agree with me when I say this. If you have a big project to accomplish, you better have a big vision to go with it. Because if your vision is too small, when the hard times come, and they always come for a big project, don't they? They're always problems. If your vision is too small, then you know what happens. You just sort of push the project aside when it starts getting too hard to do. Maybe you can give up on it completely. And that's the way it is in a marriage. And I can remember when my wife and I got married, we were 19 years old. And back in those days, we looked at each other and said, sweetheart, we may not have money to pay the rent, but I got you, babe, and that's all I need. <laughs> and that was a sweet vision of what a marriage was, except that six weeks later, we had to pay the rent too. Problem. Maybe you can remember when you had your first child. If you were like we were. Now, we're not going to make her as neurotic as our parents made us, are we? Then your kids become teenagers, and you wonder if you did as well as your parents, huh? And when those kinds of things happen, you know what happens to you. It's easy to set the project aside, to sort of give up on it, to lose your energy for it, your life for it. That's just the way life is. You have a big project, you need a big vision, one that will get down inside of you, and propel you through the hard times so you can reach beyond yourself and accomplish the goal. Welcome to life. Well, there are lots of places in the Bible where you can find Jesus and other people describing a project that a lot of you are involved in this morning. It's called the project of being a Christian. The project of being a follower of Jesus. And it's a big one. And it has problems in it. It gets hard at times. And if your vision isn't big enough for what it means to be a follower of Jesus, then when the hard times come, you even give up on that. But one of the places where Jesus gives us a very succinct, and it's easy to remember, vision of what it means to follow him is in this passage we just recited, the Lord's Prayer. And I think most of us can find ourselves somewhere in that Lord's Prayer. Yep, that's what my life is about. In fact, I think most of us in the room today would sort of locate our lives, our vision for our lives, probably down in the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer. Just think about it for a minute. Give us this day our daily bread, which basically means, Lord, help me depend on you more. Please take care of me. Forgive us our debts, which means, I'm sorry, I did it again, forgive me, please. And lead us not into temptation, which basically means, please help me do better tomorrow than I did today. Isn't that where you live your life? Trying to have your needs met by God, trying to be forgiven of your sins, trying to do better tomorrow than you did today. 
If that's the center of your following Jesus, if that's the vision for what your life is to be, way to go. Because you're way ahead of most people in the world today. Most people in the world today just bounce around from one thing to another and don't really have much that centers their lives or gives them a drive for living life. But it, we got that. But did you notice that in the bottom half there's something in common to all of those petitions? Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation, no wonder. No wonder we tend to find the heart of our lives in that, the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer. It's all about us. And aren't we all about us? But I'm convinced of something. That as important as the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer is, I'm convinced that the big vision for what it means to be a follower of Jesus is found in the first half, the top of the Lord's Prayer. And you know how it goes. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Get the difference there? It's not about us. It's about him. And that's where the big vision that Jesus offers in the Lord's Prayer appears. It's in that top half of the Lord's Prayer. You know, the part we hurry through so we can get down to something that means something to us. Give us this day our daily bread. That first half. So I'm hoping this morning that we can just sort of unpack that a little bit. What Jesus says in the first half of the Lord's Prayer so that maybe we can get a reorientation to life. An orientation that is big enough and can get down deep inside of us so that when the hard times come, we can push through. And not just we but our children as well. And not just our children, but our children's children beyond us. Isn't that the kind of vision you want for your Christian life? I think we can find it in the top half of the Lord's Prayer. Is that big? Is that compelling? Listen to the first thing that Jesus said to his apostles. Because... Jesus called on them in the opening of the Lord's Prayer to do some adjusting the ways they believed about certain things, the ways they felt about them, what they did in response to them. And the first thing that Jesus challenged his apostles to begin to adjust is this, what they believed about God. Our Father. Those are precious words to Christians. In fact, they're so precious that most Christians in the world, throughout history, have not called this the Lord's Prayer. Did you know that? They simply call it our Father. Because this is what Jesus taught his followers. The one who made everything, and I mean everything, from the billions of galaxies that are out there to the smallest, tiniest, nano, whatever may be there that you can't even see, the one who made all those things, and the one who sustains all those things, can actually become your personal spiritual father. He can know you by name. He will care about the things you care about. He'll protect you. He'll honor you like a father honors a son. He'll take care of you. That's a remarkable thing to think that the one who made everything can actually love you that much. 
But it's exactly what Jesus taught his disciples. Now, I'm sure in a group this size, this morning, there's probably someone here who has never really experienced God as their loving, kind, personal father. So let me just say to you, if you've never experienced that and you don't know what that might mean, you understand, yeah, there's a God who made everything, but what would it mean for me to have that kind of father-child relationship with him? Let me tell you, it's not hard to begin to have that kind of relationship with God. The way that the Bible puts it is this, to as many as receive Jesus, to them God gives the right to be called the children of God. So if you would like to know God in that way, all you have to do is come to Jesus. And he'll give you that right. It's a wonderful thing. But you and I know this, that as soon as we think of God as our Father, it's almost impossible to avoid an image popping into our heads. You know what that image looks like. When we think of God as our Father, we tend to think of him like he's some sweet old granddaddy up in heaven with a big long white beard sitting in his celestial rocking chair, rocking back and forth like this up there in heaven and looking down on the earth and wringing his hands like this and saying to himself, oh, I wish my children on the earth would just pay a little more attention to me. Their lives are so miserable because they won't give themselves to me. And that makes me sad because I live, I exist to make them happy down there on the earth. It's like God is your sweet granddaddy. Now, I know what a sweet granddaddy is. I am the sweetest of them all. <laughs> I have three grandchildren in Jackson, Mississippi, whom I adore, and they adore me too. But I'm no fool, I know exactly why. It's because when they were little, this is what I'd have to do every single time I saw them. I would hug them really tight and whisper in their ears, I love you so much. And then the next thing I would say to them every single time was this, do you want to go to Toys R Us now? <laughs> and I would take my Toys R Us and I'd buy them whatever they wanted. Do you want one of those? Let's get two. Three is even better. Come on, it would be great. And so when they see me, they salivate like Pavlov's dogs. <laughs> Tops is here. <laughs> you see, that's the way a lot of people think about God. That God is like this sweet old granddaddy up in heaven who exists to make people happy. But I have good news for you. That's not what Jesus had in mind. When he said, pray our Father. What he had in mind is something very different. And we get the first clue of this from the fact that Jesus doesn't say simply pray our Father. What does he say? Pray our Father in heaven. Our heavenly Father. And every time you look in the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, the picture of heaven is the same. Heaven is not God's living room where he sits on a rocking chair wringing his hands. No, heaven is the throne room of God. It's where God sits on his celestial throne where he rules as the king. He sits there and blinding light radiates from him. A rainbow surrounds him, lightning flashes, echoes of thunder around him, and then these creatures that fly around him saying day and night, holy, 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 hallowed be your name. When Jesus speaks of praying God, our Father in heaven, May your name be kept holy. That is what 
he was focusing on. God in heaven sitting on his throne. The number one way that the Bible describes God to us is that God is our king. It might surprise you to know this, but in the days of the Bible, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, in Israel and outside of Israel, in fact, it was very common for people to call their human kings their fathers. It's just a title that you use for the king. That's what Jesus is doing here. God is the king. And that is a huge problem for you and me. Because we, living in America, do not have a clue what that might mean. Most of us in this room, if not all of us, have never lived under the authority of a king. I mean a real king who holds your life and death in his hands. A king on whom you're entirely dependent for your safety and your comforts. Most of us don't have a clue what it might mean on a human level to be under the authority of a king, and so we have a hard time even understanding what it means to say that God is our king. I come from Virginia. We have the best flag in the Union. I don't know if you know that or not. What is up with this Alabama flag anyway? <laughs> I don't get it. But the Virginia flag is unbelievable. And a lot of you have seen it, probably, at least from a distance. It's got this nice, solid blue satin background, right? If you don't believe me, Google it right now. Pull out your phone. Google it and see what I'm telling the truth. And in the middle of that Virginia flag is a circle. Now, most people know that much. But I want to take you inside the circle, because I think it tells us a lot about you and me. Inside the circle of the flag of the Commonwealth of Virginia is a picture. It's a picture of a man lying dead on his back on the ground. And next to him is a crown that's fallen off of his head. You see, he's a dead king. And standing over that dead king is a woman who has a spear in her hand and her foot on the chest of that dead king. Got the picture? A woman, spear in her hand, foot on the chest of a dead king lying on the ground, and written around the edge of that circle are these words in Latin, sic semper tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. You see, we will never have a king in the state of Virginia. Never. And if somebody tries to become our king, we know exactly what to do. We send our women after them. <laughs> but we will not have it, and they know exactly what to do with that king. No king will rule over us. Did I hear an amen in a Presbyterian church? There you go. What am I telling you? We're not going to have it. Why? I think we all know why. It's because human kings are terribly inconvenient to have around. they got weird ideas. I mean, strange ideas. Like, their will is more important than yours. Their desires are more important than yours. Their glory is more, more, is more important than yours. I mean, human kings actually believe their subjects ought to be happy to serve them. They actually believe that their subjects ought to be happy to die for them. And when people like that are around you, it's terribly inconvenient because you don't get to do what you want to do. Now, 
And I think that tells us something about our faith, about our religion. If your Christian faith has become convenient, and I mean by that that you just kind of live your Christian life, never really wonder whether you're doing the right thing, or never really making any significant changes, never reconsidering what God wants you to do with your life. If you're just kind of going along and your Christian life fits into your life like a hand in glove, and Christianity is just really nice and terribly convenient, then maybe, just maybe, you still don't know what it means to say that God is your king. Don't you know he gives you every breath that you breathe? Don't you know he gives you every penny that's in your pocket? And those of you who follow Christ, don't you know he bought you with the price of his own son's blood? You do not belong to yourself anymore. You belong to him, lock, stock, and barrel, every single moment of every single day. And that reality means that your Christian faith will not be convenient. It will be devoted to the King of Glory who calls you to give your whole life to Him. Now, I think we have some adjusting to do. Some adjusting in the ways we think about God. And Jesus tells us that if you want a vision that's big enough to move you through your life and pass on to your children and your children beyond that, it begins right here. God is not your grandfather. God is your king. But, but that opening half of the Lord's Prayer, um, it has a little bit more than that in it. It's another element there. Another way in which Jesus called on his disciples to do some changing, some adjusting. And I think it challenges us too. It's going to sound weird, but let me tell you what Jesus says next. You need to be ready to change the way you think about the earth. Life on this planet. This thing we're doing right now, breathing the air, living here for the few years, you're still going to live here on this earth. And you know that's what he does. What does he say at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's next? May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And those words call on us to do some major adjusting in the vision of what it means to follow Jesus. The first thing Jesus says is, may your kingdom come. You see, I told you you stop thinking about God as our king. Our Father in heaven, may your kingdom come. Okay, Jesus. I've heard that before, but what does that mean? I mean, I had a grandmother who used the expression when the kingdom comes all the time. Every time we would go into the kitchen and ask her if we could have another piece of pie or some ice cream or something like that, she would look at us and she would say, well, sure, you can have that when the kingdom comes. <laughs> so I learned as a young child, when the kingdom comes means, no, get out of here, you're bothering me. I didn't know what it meant. And a lot of you have, would even use that expression when the kingdom comes and maybe not have much idea of what it means. So Jesus tells us right away, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. That part I can get. I mean, what kind of king is he? And what kind of kingdom would he have if his will wasn't being done? Okay, so we're supposed to like that, that people will serve God as the king. All right, I've got that part. 
But Jesus, where do you want that to be true? Do you hear what he says? May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. I want you to notice something. Jesus does not make the destiny of God's kingdom and the destiny of God's will heaven. The destiny of God's kingdom, the destiny of God's will was the earth. And heaven was the standard for what Jesus wanted to be true on the earth. Now, if you and I had written this prayer, we wouldn't have done it that way. We would have probably said something like, may your kingdom come, may your will be done in heaven. I mean, after all, that's where we're going to spend eternity, and we really want it nice up there. But it's not why Jesus came to this earth. It's not why Jesus died on the cross. It's not why he resurrected from the dead. It's not why he called you to himself. Not that you would hope that heaven will be a nice place, but that you would hope and dream and work for the goal of the earth becoming like heaven. Where God's will is done here, like it is done there. And when you read the Bible, and you look at various scenes of heaven, how is God's will done? The answer is, perfectly. Even the devil, when he's before God's throne, will do exactly what God says. Now when he leaves, he's like you and me. He goes and does what he wants to do. But when he's there, he doesn't even think about doing something other than what the king on the throne says. And no wonder. We would too, if we were before the blinding radiance of God, surrounded by the glory of heaven. We would not dare even to hesitate to do what God says. And Jesus says, you want to be my follower? then take my vision upon yourself. God is your king, and I want his kingdom to be on this earth as it is in heaven. I want every creature on earth to do the will of God perfectly. That almost takes our religion, as we usually think about it, and turns it on its head. Because the orientation is not toward making it to heaven. The orientation is making the earth into the kingdom of God. You get the difference? Think about it this way. Suppose you were to ask an unbeliever. Now, I mean a, a real unbeliever, somebody that doesn't make any bones about it. I don't believe in Jesus. I'm not into that stuff. And you were to ask that person, oh, what would be a good life to have? I mean, the kind of life you would be glad to have lived. So that the last moment, as you're taking your last breath, you could say, I'm glad I lived this life and not some other. What, what would be a good life for you as an unbeliever? Well... Looking around the room, most of the people that you know who are not Christians would probably say things like these. I hope not to get divorced more than once. Because it really hurts. I don't want to go through that again. And you know, uh, to have a good life, my kids need to do well. Because if my kids aren't doing well, that's not a good life. And everybody needs a job. Everybody needs money. So if I could have a job, that'd be good. If it paid a lot of money, that'd be even better. Because then I could retire early. And I can enjoy life before I get too old to enjoy life. And, uh, you know, I know everybody's going to get sick and everybody's going to die, but I just want to die with as little pain as possible. 
And the best way to die is in the middle of the night. Because you go to sleep, you don't even know what's going to happen, and you're gone. And then a lot of our friends would probably also say things like these. Um, if, after I die, I wake up and I discover there is a God and there is a heaven, I hope that God will agree with me that I was good enough to get in. Isn't that where most of your unbelieving friends are? Your relatives, people in your family, people you know at work? That I want all these things, but in the end, I'm hoping that if there is a God, he'll agree with me that I was good enough to get in. Can't have any better than that. That's where most of them are. And if that's where you are today, I have some good news for you. First, the bad news. Nobody's good enough to get in. The good news is that Jesus was. Now, that's why Christians talk about putting faith in Jesus. That's why Christians talk about standing in the shadow of Jesus, holding on to Jesus, getting counted with Jesus. It's because we know he really was good enough to be accepted into the throne room of God, no hesitation whatsoever. And the only way really to get in is because you are identified with him. So that's what it means. That's the good news. That's what... That's what the gospel of Jesus is all about. But now let me ask you to ask the same question. Imagine this, not of an unbeliever, but of a believer. Now, I mean, a real one like you. You know, somebody goes to church, reads the Bible, and maybe even go to a Bible study. Do you do that around here? You go to Bible studies? <coughs> maybe you have a preacher like Wilson or something. Tells you, you got to do it, got to do it. And you try your best and you do it. Well, if, if we were to ask a Christian, a real Christian, what would be a good life? You know, the kind of life you'll be glad to have lived. So that at the last moment, as you're taking your last breath, you would say, I'm glad I lived this life rather than some other. What would we say? Well, at least half of us would say, I hope not to get divorced more than once because it really hurts. You know, I couldn't call it a good life if my children aren't doing well. I need my kids to do well. And everybody needs a job and money, so if I could just get a good job that pays a lot of money, then I could retire early so I could enjoy life before I get too old to enjoy life. And I know everybody's going to get sick and die, but, you know, I want to avoid as much pain as possible. And even Christians will say the best way to die is in the middle of the night because you just go to sleep. You don't even know it's happening. I know I'm weird, but I think that's the worst way to die. I always ask God for a two-minute warning. <laughs> I got some things to say. <laughs> and my wife and daughter have agreed that if they're there, they'll have the phones out. So if you hear that I die, go to Facebook, you'll hear my last two minutes. Boy, do I have some things to say. <laughs> I want that two-minute warning, but most people don't. They just want to sort of drift away. But that's where the story changes, right? Because those who believe in Jesus know that when they die... Their souls will begin to shake like this and maybe sparkle a little bit and sprout some wings on them and we'll fly away to heaven. When we get to heaven, St. Peter will be there at the gate and he'll say, I see the blood of Jesus on you. You're welcome then. But wait one moment. And he'll go over to this big closet and he'll pull off the wall a gigantic golden heart, hand it to you and say, now that's your place in the choir of heaven. Go over there and start playing that harp and singing forever and forever and forever and forever 
forever. You ever been in a choir? <laughs> I have to tell you this, but that sounds more like the other side rather than that. <laughs> I could do it for 10,000 years, but forever is a lot longer than 10,000 years. But that is the greatest dream that most sincere followers of Jesus in our country today have. That their goal, their destiny, their highest good is to make it to heaven and get a golden harp and somehow be overdosed on celestial Prozac so that they think that is bliss. <laughs> now I have some really good news for you. Jesus did not come to this earth so you would receive a golden harp. He did not die, he did not resurrect, he did not ascend into heaven, and he's not coming back again so that you could spend eternity singing in a choir with celestial Prozac. It's not something so trivial as that. Why did Jesus come? May your kingdom come, may your will be done, on the earth as it is in heaven. Jesus came to make all things new, because from the very beginning, God's plan was for this planet to be the place where he demonstrated that he is the creator king who receives all glory. And the way that he demonstrates that on this planet is that he turns this earth into his kingdom, where his will is done here like it is in heaven. That's the goal. That's the dream. Even now, even now, in a world that's full of war and sickness, oppression, poverty, all the horrors that are all around us today, even now, occasionally, we can get a glimpse of what that means. We get moments where we see the wonder of being the image of God, living in God's beautiful world. You know what it's like. It's when you wake up in the morning and you see that sunrise, and it just takes your breath away. It's when you hear that concert that just lifts you out of yourself. It's your first child. It's when you first fell in love. Those are moments that we have right now in this sinful world where we get a glimpse of why we were created for a kingdom of God on this earth. But now imagine this world. No sin, no sorrow, no oppression, no injustice, no sickness, no war, no shame for anything you have ever done. You won't have to hide anymore. Imagine that kind of world where Jesus is there and you live with him, and you serve him in the, what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. That is why Jesus came. And nothing less than that is worthy of Jesus. And nothing less than that is worthy of you. But you understand, don't you, that if that becomes our vision for life, then the goals of our lives as followers of Jesus, they'll be very different. I mean, when was it that we found that the goals of our lives were almost exactly the goals of an unbeliever? 
add a little honey, little honey on the end, call it heaven, okay. But when did we have the same priorities that they had? When was it that we saw our personal happiness in a marriage as the goal? When was it that we made everything rest on the success of our children? When was it that getting a good job and making a lot of money and being able to retire early became our dream? When was it that living with as little pain as possible and dying in the middle of the night was our highest good? Just like an unbeliever. It was when we gave up on the vision that Jesus gives us here in the Lord's Prayer. That we are to live for something much greater. And that greater thing is that the earth will become the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these other things in your list, they'll take care of themselves. It's okay. But seek first the kingdom of God. Now here we are in a church. All of you have personal ways and familial ways in which you need to sort of reorient yourselves. But here we are in a church that's just getting going. You know, it's a very young church. If you didn't know that, it is. But do you know that one of the problems that Christian churches have these days, especially in our country, is that you're tempted to think that this church is just another thing for you. I've got my marriage, I've got my kids, I've got my job, I've got my church. Now my life is all together, and it's all for me. No, it's not. Your marriage is for building the kingdom of God around the earth. Your children are for building the kingdom of God around the earth. Your job is for building the kingdom of God around the earth. And this church is for building the kingdom of God around the earth. Your happiness is not the issue. Your dreams are not the issue. It's the glory of God and His vision that is the issue. I love the fact that we can look at ourselves, even some of us who have been Christians for a long, long time, and we can say, you know, no wonder I'm discouraged. No wonder I don't have much joy in my life. My vision for what it means to be a Christian is just tiny. But Jesus has given us a great vision of what life is all about. And you know how it goes. Our royal Father, enthroned in heaven, may your name be kept holy. You are our King. May your kingdom May your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you have not left us without purpose. And you have not left us without vision and hope that goes so far beyond us that is unimaginable. But we can hear these words and we can try to understand them and apply them to our lives, but we know this. We cannot do this unless the power that raised you from the dead, the power of Holy Spirit, gives us newness of life. And so, Holy Spirit, our prayer is very simple. Give us the vision that Jesus had so that we may live for you and we may bring glory to our Holy Father who is in heaven. Amen.